Father, we recognize today that all that is good in our lives comes from you. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. And Lord, even the trials that we face are traced upon our dial by the Son of Love. And Lord, we pray that in the midst of our dark times and our good days, we would remember that you never change. Your purpose for us is true and righteous. It's holy and good. And what we cannot see, give us faith to see that you are still on the throne. Father, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your holy word today. And in doing so, have lives that are radically changed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A Christian was going to his doctor and the doctor opened up to this believer about his own difficulties in believing um, the, the message of scripture. He said, I believe there's a God. I, I think I believe in Jesus Christ and that the Bible is true, but I'm not saved. What's the matter with me? I believed, but I'm not saved. The patient was quite wise in saying, you know, I came to you a couple weeks ago and I believe that you could heal me. I believe that you were trustworthy and you told me to go on a certain course that might bring healing to my soul. You gave me uh, a bunch of pills. I have no idea what's in them. You told me to take them. You told me to take them regularly. I haven't done the research, but I trust you. And I took those pills and I'm getting better. He said, faith is just like that. It's one thing to believe that something is true. It's another thing to rely upon it. I trusted you and I took the medicine. And so what you need to do is recognize that God is trustworthy. And even though you don't have all the details nor can you answer all of the questions. You believe God is trustworthy and you must trust him and receive the remedy he's given to you, which is Jesus Christ. It's not the faith in the doctor that saves. It's the faith that takes the remedy that saves. In other words, believing is more than just acknowledging that something is true. It's embracing it. So we find ourselves back in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews, chapter 11. And in this wonderful chapter, we have a great example of genuine faith. Someone said, little faith will bring your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. I would change that just a little bit. I think basically it's right, but I would say genuine faith brings your soul to heaven and growing faith brings heaven to your soul. Faith that continues to mature, to have greater understanding of God's truth and greater submission to it. 
Now we have here the heroes of the faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews, and some are just briefly mentioned, as Pastor Doug read a moment ago, and some are given a little more press. Abraham is spoken of the most. There's about 12 verses dealing with him. And then Moses is going to be the second individual who has more verses about him, around seven. But squeezed in between Abraham and Moses in rapid succession are three important lives in three brief verses. And we looked at these just a little bit last week. Let's look at them. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. Verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. So he's focusing on his grandsons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. And then verse 22, by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Now, three things are common in these three verses. Number one, they're all patriarchs, very well-known leaders in the Hebrew community faith. Secondly, the timing of each person's faith story comes at the end of their life. The greatest example of faith is often found at the end of an individual's life. But thirdly, we could also add that their focus was on the future, the next generation or the generations to come. It's interesting that Jacob was focusing on the next generation, his sons, or Isaac, I should say. Jacob was focusing on two generations down, his grandsons. And Joseph is focusing on multiple generations, his posterity, all coming in the future. Now let's focus on verse 22 this morning, the faith story of Joseph. By faith, when his end was near, Joseph spoke of the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt. What we're going to notice in this particular verse is the foundation for Joseph's faith, which is the foundation for every person's faith. What did he place his faith in? Exodus. How did he hear about the Exodus? Well, you actually have to go way back to Genesis chapter 15 to his great-grandfather, Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, Genesis 15, 13, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated. He says, but I'm gonna punish that nation that they serve as slaves. Afterward, they will come out with great possessions. Verse 16, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet been reached in full. So the message was to Abraham, you're going to Egypt for a time, but he didn't give him any details. And you're going to be mistreated, and he mentioned 400 years. And then he said, but you will come back. Abraham didn't have all the details, but he had a promise. 
and he embraced the promise. Because God is larger than our understanding of the details. So it was enough for Abraham then to sojourn in a land that was not his, but one day would be his, and to keep looking for the city to come. Faith grabs hold of the trustworthiness of God. One of the best things you could do for your spiritual life is to spend some time in the word looking at the trustworthiness of God. Memorize two or three or five verses that tell you that God is true and God is faithful and God always is going to answer his word. Memorize those words. Let them percolate in your soul. Let them be close to your mind and heart so that when you're in a difficult time and you cannot see your way through, you know that God is true. And faith believes that God is. And what else? That God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. But then Joseph might have gotten word, not only being passed down through the genera- uh, from his great-grandfather Abraham, but also from Jacob himself. So this is Genesis 48, verse 21. Israel said to Joseph, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. And Joseph embraced those words. He took that as the word of God given to his father, given before to his great-grandfather, and it was the hope of Israel. Now, it looks to me like Jacob, Israel, didn't really know the details of the timing either because he said God is going to take you back unless he was speaking of the nation in seed form in Joseph, which is possible. So here's Jacob about ready to die. He does die, and Joseph and his brothers now take a trip from Egypt. The whole family is there. They take a trip from Egypt back to Canaan so that they can bury Jacob in the family mausoleum in Machpelah. And then they journey back to Egypt, and Joseph is about 50 years old at this point in time. He got to Egypt when he was 17. He got into power when he was 30. Now some 20 years, the family's been in the land of Egypt. They bury Jacob, they come back, and the brothers are frightened that Joseph is going to mistreat them because of the fact that they mistreated him. But Joseph says, this is God's purpose. He sent me ahead to save you, not to harm you. And in that chapter, after the burial of Jacob, 60 years swiftly passes until we come to the 50th chapter and Joseph is dying. At the age of 110. And Joseph says, basically to his people, we read it in Hebrews, in the Exodus, when that Exodus comes, Take my bones with you. And that is nothing more than embracing the word of God. That's the foundation of his faith. It wasn't his feelings. When you think about it, they had it pretty good in the land of Egypt. Why would Joseph want to go back to Canaan? There are only bad memories there. 
When Joseph arrived into Canaan, he was about seven years old and had just lost his mom. His dad began to treat him with favor, which aroused the hostility of his brothers, who in turn sold him and put him into slavery. Canaan was not a happy place. Canaan was not kind to Joseph. And just naturally speaking, he probably would have no desire to go back. And think about the Hebrew people now residing in Egypt under Joseph's care. Joseph was like royalty, the prime minister of Egypt. And all that he had established for his family and the welfare of the country benefited the Hebrew people. They were living in the land of Goshen in the upper Nile region, the most fertile territory anywhere. It was like paradise. And because they were related to Joseph... Well, things were pretty easy for them. It wasn't advantageous to go back. It probably wasn't smart to go back. Maybe not even possible. But they were going back. And Joseph said, when you go back, take my bones. Why? Why are you going back? Because that's what God said. You and I are living in the midst of a crazy world where up is down and down is up. Right is wrong and wrong is right. And if we don't get our bearings from truth outside of our own surroundings, outside of our own context, society and world, if we don't go to the word of God, we will be constantly tossed to and fro. And our lives will be a wreck. Case in point, many Christian lives are a wreck. And we can blame God for the problems, but it's not his fault. For it's through those problems he wants to show himself mighty and strong on our behalf. So what is the foundation of Joseph's faith? The word of God. What is the expression of Joseph's? Faith. Well, verse 22, he gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Now, his bones had already been buried. It's a very interesting thing as archaeologists are, are going through what they find in the land of Egypt. Egyptologists, uh, some of the most brilliant, have uncovered some interesting things. This actually comes from 1870 in a sermon by Charles Spurgeon, 150 years ago, who said, in the Sahara, close by the great period of Pharaoh Apophis, stands at this day, late 1800s, the tomb of a prince whose names and titles are written in hieroglyphics. The, the scripture uh, tells us that indeed, Joseph was embalmed, so there was some kind of burial there. On this tomb is the name Itsuf, and among his many titles, one was director of the king's granary, and underneath that, the word abrek, which means to bow the knee, to which Spurgeon said it's more than probable that this monument was prepared for Joseph himself. Now we come up to modern times and there is a scholar 
who, has been st- who wrote a book on uh, Egypt, the Pharaoh, and the kings, and said in the upper Nile that there's been discovered a great administrative building in the land of Goshen, where Joseph would have been buried. This particular building has 12 rooms. And of course, a believing person might think that's significant for the 12 tribes. It appears to be a place where the granary would have been kept or the administration of the granary. But more important than that, a palace has been found with a statue and a small tomb and everything seems to point to a great leader who was both Egyptian and Hebrew because of the statue that has been uncovered. Now these things uh, are not, archaeology never proves the Bible. You don't have to go to archaeology to prove the Bible, but it's nice, and and true archaeology always does this, it's nice when it supports the Bible. And it just could be that Joseph, being embalmed, had his own tomb in the upper Nile region where, where people would know that's where Joseph is buried. Prime Minister of Egypt still being honored. And the people knew where the bones of Joseph were. That leads us now to what Joseph said back in Genesis. He said to his brothers, I'm about to die. Interesting, Joseph the younger probably died before his brothers, or at least some of them. He said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid. How do you know that? God told Abraham and God told uh, Israel, Jacob, that he's going to take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promise was repeated. Verse 25, and Joseph made the Israelites swear on an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry up my bones from this place. Verse 26, so Joseph died at the age of 110 and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. He was already buried and is going to be buried now for probably 360 years. I don't even know if my math is right on this. I'm guessing around 360 years. In other words, he gave the promise or the command for his brothers to take out his bones long before they were enslaved because they still had it good after Joseph died for a while. And it is incredible to me that out of all the stirring episodes in the life of Joseph, the Holy Spirit would choose this one as the most amazing display of his faith. I'm not sure why, but maybe this is part of the reason. Because it's easy to run well for a while and then quit. But it's much harder to keep running until the race is done. It's easy to express faith. Jesus talked about it in the parable of the sower where some seeds grow quickly up like those who receive the word of God with joy. But when the sun comes out, when persecution is evident, they give up and there's no fruit whatsoever. And so the scripture tells us that we need to make sure that our faith finishes well. Again, I want to read something from Spurgeon. I thought this was so good. We cannot readily tell which actions in a gracious and good life God may most value. 
The Holy Spirit in this chapter selects out from good lives the most brilliant examples of their faith. I should hardly have expected that he would have mentioned the dying scene of Joseph's life as the most illustrious proof of his faith in God. Does this not tell us that we are very poor judges of what God most delights in? Very likely, when we least please ourselves, God is best pleased with us. That trial which we thought we passed through with so much impatience may have been before God an exhibition of true patience as he looked down deep into our souls. The test by which we try ourselves and criticize others are very inaccurate. It may be when we read our own biographies in the light of eternity, we shall be surprised to notice that God has highly commended what we wept over. We had a vivid illustration of this last week at the deacons meeting when one of our deacons gave his faith story and expressed how he felt that he had sinned in not dealing patiently with a situation in his life and Pastor Doug came up with a great comment afterwards. He said something, something like this. He said, what you see as sin and failure, uh, most of us see as the triumph of faith. Most of us see as a great example of someone battling in the midst of difficulty. You see, we can't even judge our own selves. But God chooses to judge us from a distance. And one of the interesting things about Joseph, one of the interesting things about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that they had a faith that knew how to wait. A faith that knew how to wait. Here's a poem written by Russell Keffler. I think this is excellent. A little longer. Desperately, helplessly, longingly I cried. Quietly, patiently, loving, lovingly, God replied. I pled and I wept for a clue to my fate and the master so gently said to me, wait. <laughs> wait? You say wait? My indignant reply. Lord, I need answers. I need to know why. Is your hand shortened or have you not heard? By faith I have asked and I'm claiming your word. My future and all to which I relate hangs in the balance. And you tell me, wait? I'm needing a yes, a go-ahead sign or even a no to which I'll resign. You promise, dear Lord, that if we believe, we need but to ask and we shall receive. And Lord, I've been asking and this is my cry. I'm wearing of asking. I need a reply. Then softly, quietly, I learned of my fate. As the master replied, dear child, wait. So I slumped in my chair, defeated and taunt and grumbled to God's. So I'm waiting for what? He seemed to kneel and his eyes met with mine and he tenderly said, I could give you a sign. I could shake the heavens and darken the sun. I could raise the dead and cause the mountains to run. I could give all you seek and please you would be. You'd have what you want, but you wouldn't know me. 
You'd not know the depth of my love for each saint. You'd not know the power that I give to the faint. You'd not learn to see through the clouds of despair. You'd not learn to trust by knowing I'm there. You'd not know the joy of resting in me when darkness and silence is all you can see. You'd never experience the fullness of love when the peace of my spirit descends like a dove. You wouldn't know that I give. You would know that I give and I save for a start, but you'd not know the depth of my wonderful heart. You'd never know, should your pain quickly flee, what it means that by my grace sufficient, my grace is sufficient for thee. Yes, your dearest dreams overnight would come true, but oh, the loss if you miss what I'm doing in you. So be silent, my child, and in time you will see that the greatest of gifts is to truly know me. And though oft my answers seem terribly late, my most, precious, my most precious answer of all is still, child, wait. They never received the promise, most of these people in Hebrews 11. Never. But they held on. And that is amazing. Do you ever watch a football game and say, boy, I wish this would end at halftime? <laughs> because we're leading, and if we could just stop now, we'd have a victory. But there's another half to be played. And often the game turns around in the second half. And you and I are living lives hoping that we'll get the answers in the second quarter or the third quarter. And maybe even near the end, there is still no answer. But God's in control, right? Right? Uh, yeah, I don't want to say it either. You commit yourself, you say it, and the Lord says, okay, I heard that. Now he knows. Why can we not trust our wonderful Savior who's wise beyond our ability to comprehend the last verse in Genesis speaks of a coffin, but it is not without hope. Rob the tomb and get my bones. Put them in an ossuary and take them with you when you leave. For God has a plan for you and every word of God is true. We cannot hope to die triumphantly unless we live obediently. If our faith is not consistent today, what will it be like tomorrow? An old Christian man was passing away and someone was caring for him. Friends came to visit and they said, how is he doing and the answer was this. He is dying full of life. <laughs> He's dying full of life. Amen. Heavenly Father, let us realize that our sojourn in this world is so brief concerning, uh, related to eternity. 
and concerning our inability to view things as they are. Lord, you never ask us to to have our faith limited by reason, but the very limits of our reason prove the necessity for faith. We cannot do this on our own. We cannot see. We cannot stand. We cannot wait. But, oh, Lord, in you, in your time, you make all things beautiful in your time. So, Lord, show us every day as we seek to walk your way that you do just what you say in your time. We pray all of these things, Lord, in your matchless name. Amen.